Hi everyone, I'm Elizabeth Stein, founder and CEO of Purely Elizabeth, and this is Live Purely with Elizabeth, featuring candid conversations about how to thrive on your wellness journey. This week's guest is Todd White, founder of Dry Farm Wines, the largest natural wine merchant in the world. Dry Farm Wines vets each grower's practice and supports those who focus on regenerative farming, biodiversity, hand harvesting, and the absence of industrial additives. Every wine selected is not only organic and biodynamic, but also lower in alcohol, sugar-free, free of toxic additives, low sulfites, and keto and paleo friendly. In this episode, Todd shares some dirty hidden secrets about the wine industry, like the fact that there are 76 FDA approved additives in wine that aren't labeled and we don't even know about. He dives deep into how wine is made and what actually makes a natural wine versus an organic wine. He explains how and why consuming lower alcohol natural wines make you feel better, why natural wines are hard to find, and how sugar and sulfites exist in most wines. If you care about what you put into your body, this episode is a must to better understand about the wines that you are drinking. Keep listening to learn all about Todd and Dry Farm Wines. Oh, and if you want to try a membership, which I would definitely recommend, go to dryfarmwines.com slash purelyelizabeth. Each new member will earn an extra bottle for a penny with their first order. Enjoy! Todd, welcome to the podcast. I am so excited to pick your brain, everything about wine today. Welcome. Thanks. I'm excited to be here and talk about a few dirty, dark secrets of the wine business. Yes. Our, our mission at Purely Elizabeth is helping our community thrive on their wellness journey. And so I think this information is very important for people to know, because I think to your point, it is a lot of secrets that we don't know. And I didn't know a lot of them until I discovered your company. So let's start with your journey and how, how you got to your interest in creating Dry Farm Wine. Well, you know, Dry Farm Wines didn't start out really as a business. It wasn't even really a business idea. It was, it was my personal journey of finding a better way to drink wine, a healthier way to drink wine. And let me, let me start back I you know, it really, I have been a biohacker for the last probably 30 years or more. I've been low carb at times. I've been on the therapeutic ketogenic diet, which is how dry from wines really started. I started experimenting with a therapeutic ketogenic diet, and that's very different than the diet I'm on today. The diet I'm on today I would call modified keto or much like the Atkins program. And it's fair to note for Bob Atkins, who unfortunately died tragically, but, you know, he was actually highly ridiculed, but was really the, the pioneer, you know, of bringing the ketogenic diet or modified ketogenic diet, slow carb diet to, to the world. Yeah. As a, as a health modality. And so, but I started experimenting with the therapeutic ketogenic diet, which is very specific diets, very high in fat and very low in carbs. And I was doing that for a couple of years, but that was about seven years ago. In that process, and people have different experiences with keto, but I noticed that drinking wine was making me feel really bad. And it could have been a number of cofactors, but I happened to be on this therapeutic diet time, really just experimenting with it. I didn't have any health issues. It was just, I was experimenting with, uh, I knew that the Atkins diet was very effective for me in maintaining lean body mass and then sort of managing my body. And so I wanted to take it to the next level to see, you know, if I get more extreme with this, do I get greater benefit from it? And that's a whole nother podcast we could talk about for an hour. But at any rate, I found that I couldn't, wasn't processing wine well. And I've been drinking wine since I was nine years old. And my entire adult life, I've been a wine aficionado. So I talked to a friend, the smartest person. I, I live in Napa Valley. And I know a lot of people in the wine industry. And I talked to the smartest person I know in the wine business. And I was like, you know, wine's making me feel bad. I think it's, I may, maybe need to drink less. 
because I'd had a tenuous relationship with some pretty hard drinking through my life. You know, when I was younger, I was a party like a rock star, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of that involved alcohol. And so I thought I was just aging. I thought, you know, I can't process alcohol very well. And we'll talk about how dangerous alcohol is in a moment. But so he said, if you drink any of the lower alcohol wines that are, that are made in Europe. And I was like, no. He said, well, you should check it out. So I went to the local wine store in San Francisco, the big kind of boutique wine store. And I went in and I asked the salesperson, I was like, and this is a big prestigious store called K&L. And I went in and I asked them if they could show me some lower alcohol wines. And they looked at me like I had a third eye, right? They're like, Why would you they had no that? idea what I was talking about. And like, you can look on the bottle and see what the alcohol level is. So I went around and looked at a whole bunch of bottles. And what I determined in that brief education of looking at hundreds of bottles was that anything with a 12 in it, 12 and a half or below seemed to be quite rare. So all the wines were 13% or higher and many 15, 15 and a half, 16%. Most people don't pay attention to the alcohol stated on a wine bottle. And when I say stated, the reason I say that, we'll get into this in a moment, because the, the alcohol stated on the bottle by law is not required to be accurate. We'll get into the collusion between the wine industry and the government shortly. So most people pay no attention to it, but the fact is that 12 and a half or lower, we sell wines as low as 7%. These lower alcohol wines are quite rare and actually they don't taste very good generally. So I kind of went down this path. I bought a bunch of wine in, pouring most of it down the sink. It was not drinkable. I talked with another friend about it and he's like, you should go over to buy right market which is an organic market in San Francisco that's quite spectacular. It's very, very small, but it's extremely Great market, area. yeah. So I went, bought a bunch of wine. It was 12 and a half and below. And actually most of it was quite delicious. And one in particular importer, these are all European wines. One, one particular importer called Paris Wine Imports is actually a, an American who passed away last year, but he lived in Paris. He was formerly the wine director at Byright. So I called him up in Paris and was like, look, I really love your wines and uh, they're lower in alcohol and, you know, but your particular wines are really delicious. And he said, that's because they're natural wines. And I was like, what is a natural wine? And he began to explain to me what a natural wine is. And natural wine is a very confusing term to consumers because they say, what are you doing? I say, well, I sell natural wine. And they're like, well, aren't all wines natural? And I'm like, no, they're not. And we're going to talk about that in a moment. Before we talk about that though, let's touch on alcohol because this surprises most people to hear me say this because they think I'm here selling wine which is not really what I'm here to do. What I'm here to do is educate you about how to think about drinking and how to think about drinking wine if you so choose to do it. And if what you put in your body matters to you, the knowledge I have will matter to you. But what you put in your body doesn't matter to everyone, clearly, but it matters to me and my friends and our followers. Everyone listen to this podcast, yeah. And... But it does surprise people to say, hear me say this, alcohol is a very dangerous neurotoxin that ruins millions of lives a year. And many people shouldn't drink at all. Even some of those who do drink or many of those who do drink. And if you don't drink today, I'm not recommending that you start. And my life might be enhanced if I didn't drink at all. I don't know, because that's not how it's working out. I'm going to drink, I'll only drink wine. And I only drink low alcohol natural wines because of the knowledge that I have and because of my experience with it. And the fact of the matter is I just feel better and I feel better while drinking it. It tastes better and I have fewer negative remnants from it. While drinking may not be the optimal state for me, I'm not sure, 
I'm not going to stop drinking. Not now anyway. Sure. So, but alcohol is dangerous and we have to be conscious about it. What I call con conscious consumption. We have to be, we should be thoughtful about it if we're going to drink. I think drinking is fun. I also like the taste of wine and I drink every day, except, and right now I'm on a, I'm on a three day water fast. Unless I'm on a water fast, I drink every day and I generally drink, stop the clock about a bottle a day and sometimes a little more, rarely a little less, but I drink a very specific wine. Most of the wines I drink are around 11% alcohol between nine and 11 because I like the taste of lower alcohol and I, because I like to drink, I wouldn't call it in volume, but because I like to drink throughout the evening, I don't drink during the daytime and I don't recommend anybody else does either. And the reason for that is because I want to keep my body in a fat burning state. And once you consume any exogenous form of energy, doesn't matter what it is, your body doesn't have any way to absorb that. And so it's going to start processing to expel it primarily through urine, right? You're going, that's primarily how alcohol moves out of your body, but you're going to stop burning fat. And I want to continue. I only eat once per day. I eat at night. So I want to continue my kind of maximum ketotic state and fat burning state throughout the day. So I don't drink. I also don't like to drink during the daytime. I used to, when I was younger, I enjoyed it. Now it just doesn't suit me. I don't recommend other people do it either for the reasons I just described. But when we talk about natural wine, it's fair to note, and by the way, everything I'm going to share with you right now, which sounds like a huge sales pitch for natural wine, because it is, I don't care whether you drink it hours or not, but you should, if you're drinking wine, you should be drinking sure. natural wine. Problem with natural wines, it's hard to find. And then there's a reason for that. Again, the government is also involved in this. The government conspires against you to keep you from getting more choices about wine. Because in the 1940s, when the post-prohibition laws were written, the U.S. government created what's known as the three-tier system of alcohol distribution. Now, in a handful of states like Utah, North Carolina, I'm not sure how it's treated in Colorado, but in a handful of states, the state itself distributes the alcohol, all alcohol, except sometimes beer is, is. Like Pennsylvania so is that beer. way, I think. What's that? But Pennsylvania, I believe is also yeah. that way. I'm from Pennsylvania, so I know. So and I grew up in North Carolina and it's crazy that you would go to the liquor store, which, was, store. which is a state store, Yeah. right? In North Carolina, only spirits were regulated that way. So you buy beer and wine at the store through the three-tier system. And the three-tier system means that the state approves a distributor or a number of distributors. It's a very difficult permit to get. It's politically tied generally. So in some cases, you only have one distributor in the state. And they've been there for multiple generations, right? Their grandfather started, right, in the 1940s. And so that distributor determines or group of distributors depends on the state that distributor determines what wine comes to that state and they typically deal with huge consolidated wine companies that have lots of brands that sell it to the cheaper and make their profit margins higher so they don't choose wine that comes into the state based on whether it's good for you or better for you they choose that wine based on how well it sells and what their profit margin is. And we'll get back to the, how the wine is grown and made. These huge companies don't make wine that is better for you. They make wine that's faster and cheaper, which is why they use irrigation. We'll get back to that too. Okay. But coming back to these facts, then I'm going to start build this case for you. The government's involved in all of it and not in a consumer friendly way. First of all, they restrict what you can get in your state. They restrict what you see. Then the alcohol stated in the bottle is also not required by law to be accurate. So if it says 14%, it can be as high as 15 and a half percent. And that's legal. That's crazy. There's, there's no enforcement. Even then the government doesn't have the capacity or 
the people to enforce even these silly laws that they have. So again, keep in mind anything you want to verify, but what I'm telling you, you can find online. Here's the story. The wine industry, much like the food industry over the last 50 years, using Wall Street money, using public companies, has consolidated into kind of this massive machine. So the top three wine companies in the United States produce just over 50% of all U.S. wines. And the top 30 companies in the United States produce over 70% of U.S. wines. Now, they don't want you to know that. So they hide behind thousands of brands and labels. But when you go in the store, wine store, but particularly grocery store, and you see these long shelves of wine, right? Four or five, six high, you know, 25, 30 feet long. Most of those wines are made by just a handful of companies. Of course, they don't want you to know that. So they hide behind brands and labels. You know, they'll put like a farmhouse on the label or maybe an animal cell wine. Not sure why, but, or they'll put it in a chateau. They want to suggest to you through marketing and through brand and imaging that this wine might be made in a farmhouse. When in fact, these wines are made in massive factories located in the Central Valley of California. Now these factories are football fields, multiple football fields big. They're huge. And then they have what we call tank farms. It's just wine tanks that are about 50 feet, uh, maybe 40, 50 feet tall and 25 feet in diameter. And they're as far as you can see, right? And they, they, they store wine, they ferment wine at these factories. So these giant multi-billion dollar marketing conglomerates, which is what they are, control most of everything that you drink. Okay. Not everything, most. And they control virtually everything under $25. So the problem is that in order to make wine faster, which is their goal, and cheaper, they use industrial farming which is farming with chemicals. Number two, they use additives in the winemaking process. These additives, what I call the dirty, dark secret of the wine business, there's 76 of them. Wow. They're approved by the FDA. Now, why don't you know about them? It's very simple. The wine industry, again, in collusion with the government, has prevented contents labeling from appearing on a wine bottle. Wine industry doesn't want you to know what's in that bottle. They want you to believe it's fermented grapes. They don't want you to know that it may contain toxins. So they've lobbied the government and successfully kept contents labels off of wine bottles. In addition to, they have been also successful in keeping nutritional information off of wine bottles. For example, they don't want you to know how much sugar is in it. So for people like me, who live largely a sugar-free lifestyle, largely by choice, just because it doesn't really agree with me, this lack of transparency doesn't give me the freedom and choice as a consumer who cares about what I put in my body to make the choice I want. When people say, well, aren't all wines natural? No, they're not. They're generally unnatural. They're generally factory products that have been manipulated and modified in various ways to make them, A, if they're higher in alcohol, more addictive. Alcohol levels in wine have been rising for the last 30 years. The wine industry likes alcohol. Alcohol is addictive. And alcohol is also what I call a domino drug. I sound pretty down on alcohol for a guy who sells wine, but the fact of the matter is this is just all true. Sure. And so, you know, if we're going to be credible advisors and health counselors to people to help them make better choices about what they put in their body and how they live their life to maximize the human experience, then we should be very candid about what we know. And so alcohol is a domino drug. What I mean by that is that the more you drink, the more likely you are to drink more. Cocaine is the same way. Actually, sugar is the same way. Yeah. I, I believe that 
a healthier, better life, which for me includes wine, also includes lower alcohol consumption. So my life is generally better served by drinking less. Now that I don't want to drink less often and I don't want to drink less volume, but I want lower alcohol. And the only way to achieve that is to, to, to diminish the underlying amount of alcohol in the beverage that I'm consuming, which is why I don't drink spirits. In the biohacking community and in the health community, it's very common for health leaders to recommend drinking tequila as an example. Yeah. Tequila is probably the most widely recommended alcohol from health leaders. Vodka is another, but tequila is overwhelmingly number one. And there's a lot of very sound reasons for that. It is a distilled spirit. It is pure. I agree with that. The problem is it's 45% alcohol. That's my problem with it. And so if my goal is to drink less alcohol, then I don't want to be drinking spirits. And I have plenty of experience with it. I haven't drank spirits for 25 years, but I have plenty of experience with drinking them. But for me, I'm trying to regulate and mitigate the actual amount of alcohol that I consume for reasons we've already discussed. So these natural wines, how they compare, uh, I, I know you want to ask about sulfites. Yeah. Sulfites sure. are... Sulfites and sugar. Yeah. Well, sugars, let's go to sugar first, because sugar is particularly nasty. And, and I've already mentioned, I think it's Domino Trog. I believe sugar is the most widely abused, unregulated, and addictive drug on the planet. And it kills millions and millions and millions of people every year through chronic health disease. And I believe that most chronic disease, modern chronic disease is caused by the hyperproduction of insulin or elevated blood glucose. And most people rarely get to a truly fasted state because the moment they get up in the morning, right, they're elevating their blood glucose immediately. Yep. And that addiction goes on all, all day long because that, that, that beast has got to be fed, right? Or they get hangry. And so this regulation of blood glucose, which I'm not at the moment, but I oftentimes wear a continuous glucose monitor. I have my levels on. Your levels. All right. I just took a lot off about a week ago. I was going to say, I've recently got it. And now that I, when I'm drinking dry farm, seeing what happens which is no effect on my glucose. Yeah, no effect at all. In fact, sometimes I see my blood glucose actually drops from drinking wine, uh, our wine. I don't mean that it's related to our wine, it's related to the combination of alcohol and lack of sugar. Right. And I don't wear one all the time. I wear one a couple times a year for 14 days to experiment largely with, with different food types. Yep. I only eat once a day. So. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating, but the frustrating thing about it is that it takes one to two hours to see the effect of something you've eaten. I know, like I need more time the, in the day to experiment with all the different things I want to try. Right. The interesting thing about it, what I've learned most is that among the most important things of maintaining a low blood glucose after I eat is how I stack food. So the order in which I eat something, right? So if I have a solid foundation of protein and fat, I can cheat, if you will, a little bit on things that I wouldn't be able to eat. Let me give you a great example of French fries. Yeah. So I happen to like French fries. They're good. If I sat down and ate a cup of French fries without anything else, then I would get a spike in blood glucose. However, if I mix those French fries in later in my meal, after I've had a foundation of fat through olive oil or avocado and protein, maybe beef or chicken or whatever, and then add those in a little bit later, they don't have any effect on my blood glucose. And so have you, did you notice this? Yeah, it's, foods? for sure. It's fascinating. That. Had, right. had the biggest effect and then walking afterwards has had the biggest effect. Walking is a tremendous impact on 
on health in general, which is why I think oftentimes, you know, people go to Europe and they say, right. oh, you know, I can eat the pasta there or, you know, it's different or, or, you know, I can drink the wine there and uh, don't feel bad. And it's not that all European wines are healthier. That's not a true statement. There are 56 additives approved in the EU and plenty of industrial farming happening in, in, in Europe as well. But one of the things that makes a huge difference when people go to Europe is that they walk a lot. Yeah. And I noticed that strangely, I just moved to Miami beach this past year, as we talked about, and I don't have a car in Miami and I live right on the beach. And so there's a, a massive, beautifully city funded boardwalk that runs for about six miles up and down the beach. That is a tremendous asset for the community, but I bicycle or walk a lot in Miami. I live at 35th and that 33rd and Collins. So I live about 10 blocks from the beginning in South beach. And so I walk to dinner a lot. I walk to the gym, I ride my bike, also take Ubers, of course, when I go places, but I just noticed that I walk a lot and I just found maintaining my lean body mass and, and was so much easier there because I yeah. just walked a lot. It's the walking is like tremendously because if I walked to dinner, then I walk home. Right. Great. Yeah. And, uh, makes a huge difference when you're, you know, like where I live in Napa, which I live in this really wonderful place where I could walk. It's just that I don't, right. <laughs> I mean, it's, I don't walk as often. Because, you know, you get distractions after you dinner, you're like, get wrapped up with your neighbors or whatever, you know, drinking wine. Right. And uh, so my neighbors were over here last night till like midnight. <laughs> and so the walking is, you know, super, super important. Absolutely. But so you learn a lot about wearing a continuous glucose monitor. And if you really care about dialing in, you know, your health, which to me is directly associated with blood glucose levels or being able to keep those mitigated. You learn a lot from a continuous glucose monitor. I was on a podcast recently with one of the founders. Oh. And I was one of their beta, you know, because I was visible in the biohacking community. I did their beta testing program when they first came out. So let's talk about real quickly what a natural wine is. Yes. So it's very simple because a natural wine, not much happens to it. There are three cornerstones. And by the way, while it's a confusing term to consumers, the term natural wine, while it has no official certification, France is going to be the first country next year to certify natural wine. Oh, well. The natural wine movement is really was birthed in France. And while there's no certification, now dry farm wines, as you know, has a certification process that goes far and beyond just natural because we have other health criteria that we care about in addition to being natural. Sugar is one of them. Not all natural wines are sugar-free, but we, we demand and lab test our wines to ensure that our wines are sugar-free. So can you talk about, or if we do want to come back to this, that sugar piece of how other places are adding sugar versus what your wines are? Well, let, or not yeah, adding sugar, but whatever. Yeah, but that we'll come back to natural wine okay. in a second. Let's tackle sugar real quickly. Sugar, for the record, is never added to wine. That's not how sugar gets in wine. I'll tell you how it gets there. But if you're on social media and you see a wine company, as many do, that say no added sugar, you should immediately discount and ignore that brand because that brand is being dishonest with you because sugar is never added to wine. In fact, it's not allowed, but how it does get in wine is very simple. It's called RS in the industry or residual sugar. And how residual sugar finds its way into wine is that it never left the wine in the first place. In fermentation, when you make wine, you inoculate. So you have this grape juice, which is full of sugar. 
So before we get to natural wine, I'm a little out of order here, but we're going to talk about sugar and wine and make it, then we'll come back to what natural wine is. Okay. So when you make wine, you press the juice from the berries in a bladder press, and that juice runs into a tank or it was pumped into a tank. Depends on what the setup is, but the juice gets into a tank and then that juice, which is very sweet and teeming with sugar, is filled with sugar. It's then inoculated with yeast. When the yeast activates, it'll start bobbling, much like when you make bread and you see yeast activate. It has to get to a temperature level where it will naturally activate. If it's too cold, it won't activate. If it's too warm, and it'll die. So. At this kind of range of activation, the yeast comes alive and it starts to eat the sugar like a little Pac-Man, right? It's just like the yeast, the sugar is their food source. It's how they live. It's an organism. It's a living organism. And the yeast eats the sugar. The byproduct, what they expel, is ethyl alcohol and carbon dioxide. Now, if the yeast is allowed to complete a full fermentation, meaning that the, the yeast survives, and I'll come back to this problem of yeast survival in a moment, and also the issue of inoculation of yeast, because this is all related to natural wine and the difference in commercial wine. Because in commercial wine, they use GMO lab cultured yeast for fermentation. Natural wine uses a native wild yeast for fermentation. We'll come back to that in a second, but staying on the sugar, if a wine, whether it's natural or not, in fairness, if the wine is allowed to fully ferment, then the yeast will eventually die for lack of food source and the wine will be sugar-free, whether it's natural or not. Mm. So many, some commercial wines are also sugar-free. The problem is you don't know which ones are right. or not because there's no contents or nutritional information on the bottom. The fact of the matter is we tested the top 20 best-selling wines in America last year. Red, white. And only two of them met our criteria for sugar-free. Wow. And so more often than not, they don't meet our standard. Now, our standard is quite rigid because we're health advocates and we have certain beliefs about sugar that we've already talked about. So that's how sugar, now how sugar gets in wine, this RS or residual sugar is there's a little device, it's about that big, it hangs in the tank and it will tell the winemaker at any given time how much sugar is left in the tank. And it's a very simple device, but it tells them exactly how much sugar is left in fermentation. How sugar gets in wine is that when the desired sugar level is reached, the winemaker will pour sulfur dioxide, which is a form of sulfites, will pour sulfur dioxide in the wine, which kills the yeast. And so the yeast meet an untimely and early death. And the result of that is residual sugar is left in the wine. And the reason that winemakers use sugar in wine or allow sugar to remain is because sugar creates mouthfeel. It's not necessarily sweet per se. Oftentimes you can't even taste it because the acid level in wine is so high. Mm -hmm. So you, just like in a cola, you know, just like in a, in a, in a drink, the ascorbic acid is so high in, in, in a cola that even though it contains 32 grams of sugar, you can't, it doesn't taste overly sweet, right? Because the, the, the acid is an offset to that flavor. Right. Same thing happens in wine, even though it contains a fair amount of sugar, unless it's a dessert wine or like a port or where it's clearly sweet, right? But I'm talking about in standard issue, red or white wine. It can oftentimes contain sugar, but even as a taste professional, we can't taste it. It's not, I, I sometimes I can feel it because it'll give me a headache, but I can't taste it. So, and we reject 
all but 31% of the wines that we taste. So, and many of those fail on sugar or they'll fail on other lab tests or they fail on taste. Taste is another funny thing. When you remove alcohol from wine, you remove density from it. Alcohol also, alcohol also helps hide because it's hot. It helps hide a lot of faults in wine. So when you remove the alcohol and you get lower alcohol, you actually see more of the quality of the wine because you're tasting less of the alcohol. I know all this is like, gosh, is this guy crazy? You know, he's like, Fascinating. but this is just what you need to know if you're going to drink wine. Absolutely. Right? So that's kind of the sugar story. And finally, one other piece on sugar is that, see, irrigation, I know you wanted to talk about irrigation, but an hour is a long time to really, you could go down any wormhole on any of these <laughs> topics. So they're like, you know, they're, there's just a lot to know, but irrigation actually has contributed to higher alcohol in wine. And the reason for that is because of the irrigation, what I'm going to share with you on irrigation, none of this is difficult to grasp because it's common sense. When you irrigate a grapevine, you get a higher yield. That's the size of the cluster. You, you get bigger berries. Might not surprise you that when you fill fruit with water, the berry gets bigger. And it might not surprise you when you fill fruit with water, the cluster weighs more. Now, why is that important? Because fruit is sold by the ton. More it weighs, more it's worth. So another thing that might not surprise you, when you fill a berry with water, you get a less diminished, you get a much more diminished berry in terms of character and flavor because it's been diluted with water. Mm-hmm. Well, why is that important? It, for two reasons. The character and quality of the fruit will ultimately determine the character and quality of the wine, which is why in most of Europe, it's illegal to irrigate. And then you're going to ask me why we don't sell U.S. wine to come back to that yeah. in a moment, but, but irrigation is one of those reasons. Because the irrigation is nearly ubiquitous in the United States for grape farming. So when the berry is filled with water, you have to pick it later. Why? Because it's riper and it's higher in sugar. So it must get riper to have proper, proper phenolic flavoring. So to have enough flavor to make a wine that tastes good, it has to be picked at a higher sugar level. The higher the sugar level at the time of harvest, which is known as bricks, B-R-I-X, in the field, they have a meter, a a refractor that they can measure the amount of sugar in the fruit in addition to tasting it for some people. So the bricks, the sugar level in the fruit has to be higher in irrigated fruit because there's water in it. The higher the sugar when you go to ferment, remember the yeast eat the sugar? The more sugar there is to eat, the higher the alcohol becomes. So, which is another reason that we only sell dry farm fruit. Name of our company, Dry Farm Wines. That means that the the fruit is grown without any irrigation. There's a whole bunch of other problems with irrigation, including how the vine gets its nutrient from the earth, how it competes with its neighbors for, for, for moisture and nutrient, all of these things develop a higher character of fruit, but because of time, you can't go down the irrigation wormhole entirely, but irrigation back to that in the future, (laughs) irrigation is faster, cheaper, and easier. And the common sense will tell you that if you irrigate, it's going to be faster, easier, and cheaper, and you're going to get more fruit that weighs more, that's bigger. It's also irrigated fruit, also is fed nitrogen, which is fertilizer, through the same tube. So it makes for a very lazy plant. Lazy plant makes for lazy fruit. So that's the irrigation story uh, or part of it. Uh, but let's get back, let's get to natural wine. Okay. Dry farmed natural wine. What is a natural wine? Natural wine has three components. This gets even more confused. because all natural wines are either biodynamic or organically grown. Stop the clock there for just a moment. 
all natural windings are always organic. However, when you go in the store and you see an organic wine, that doesn't mean it's natural. That is so confusing. All natural wines are always organic. Not all organic wines are natural. And that's for two reasons. Either they've been fermented with lab cultured yeast or they have other additives in them, which then don't make them natural anymore. So the three cornerstones of a natural wine always by that biodynamic or organically grown and biodynamic farming is an advanced prescriptive form of organic farming. Don't need to go down that wormhole. You can do a Google search if you want to know more about it, but it's an advanced prescriptive form of organic farming. Number two of the three components of a natural wine. Number two, natural wines are always fermented with wild indigenous native yeast. Commercial wines are fermented with GMO, lab cultured yeast, which has been modified to be more, more, more strong and sturdy. Let's go back to the difference. Why would a commercial wine use a lab cultured yeast? Why not just use the native yeast? What is native yeast? Well, own the skin of every grape at harvest, no matter where it is. There's a white waxy film on the skin of the berry. That white waxy film is actually yeast. And that yeast has collected naturally in the air, indigenous to the vineyard where the grape has grown. When the natural winemaker ferments his wine, he allows for what's known as a spontaneous fermentation. He doesn't have to add anything to it, he or she. He doesn't have to add anything to the juice because the yeast is already present. Now, what the commercial winemaker does is to introduce sulfur dioxide to kill the native yeast because they don't want the yeast competing. So they first kill the native yeast and then they inoculate it with lab-grown yeast. They do that because this yeast is easy to work with. It's very sturdy. It's more likely to finish its fermentation. And you can't make wine in high volumes with native yeast. They're just not, they're not stable enough. Native yeast will also die in a high alcohol environment. These lab-cultured modified yeast are modified to withstand alcohol environments of 18, 19%. Now, wines are not being released at 18 or 19%. When they do get fermented at these high levels, there's a technical process called reverse osmosis by which the winemaker can, because at 18 or 19%, while it wouldn't kill the yeast and the wine would ferment, it's not drinkable. It's mm -hmm. too hot. And so they remove the alcohol in that case down to a level that makes the generally down to 14 and a half or 15% that causes the wine not to be too hot, so to speak. So the two cornerstones that we've talked about, organic or biodynamic farming and native yeast fermentation, the third is no additives. They're additive free. So. This is what makes up a natural wine. While there's no certification for it, and while Dry Farm Wines does have a certification, as we talked about it, it's over and beyond just natural. While there's no certification for natural wines, what is present is an absolute international, universal understanding of exactly what natural wine means. And there is no dispute as to what that is. There's a lot of negative language from the wine industry around natural wines for quote being funky, right? And we don't sell this type of wines because we don't like the taste of them, but many natural wines are faulted. They have bacterial faults that are naturally occurring in certain cellars and wines. They also occur in commercial wines as well, but they use additives and chemicals to cure those faults. And the most toxic is called dimethyl dicarbonate, which is an approved FDA chemical for the use in winemaking. And if you do a Google search on dimethyl dicarbonate, go to its Wikipedia page and you look at the table to the right of the page, it says hazard colon toxic. Now, these 76 additives that are approved by the FDA for the use of winemaking 
in fairness, some of them are natural, but a number of them are very toxic. The problem is with the lack of transparency and labeling, you don't know what your wine has in it, period. Right. Right. So that, that's the risk that you take when you're drinking something and you don't know what's in it. Right. Is there and, any way to, to identify a natural wine other than buying it from you? Well, unfortunately, not. This becomes a problem going out to restaurants. Right. You know, ordering wine or going in the store and knowing what to buy. Natural wines, generally speaking, this is not a universal truth, but generally speaking, natural wines are sold by natural wine retailers. Now, in some cases, you may go into some organic markets and they may have a natural wine section. It's quite rare, but they're out there. But natural wine is generally available through natural wine retailers in large markets like New York City or San Francisco or Los Angeles. A tiny bit in Miami, surprisingly, like a microscopic amount of, of natural wine actually in Miami, even though it's a very sophisticated urban environment, there's just not much wine there, uh, not much natural wine, like microscopic. And there's not, um, when I think about natural wine retailers in Miami, there, there's like two, but they're so small. It's so obscure that they have very little selection, right? And there's one natural wine bar in all of Miami, one. Well, uh, there are two restaurants in all of Miami that I can think of that sell pretty much exclusively natural wine, just two, right? And so it's, in that's in this Miami, the Financial Times a few months ago called Miami the most important city in America right now because what's the evolution of the people who are moving there because of the remote work environment. And as we've talked about the lack of income tax there and eight months of amazing weather in the winter time. So there's been sort of like this dynamic explosion and there are like two restaurants where you get natural wine choices. So it's, 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 I don't know what Boulder I'm trying to think, um, you know, Boulder has some amazing restaurants where you live primarily because of one guy yeah. named Bobby Stuckey. He was on the podcast actually. And what a true hospitality professional yeah. and a really smart guy and seems to have an, an ending stream of energy. When I go on Fresgun, which is like one of my favorite restaurants in the country and he's there at the door every time. Right. <laughs> Working in the room. That's and amazing. God, I could never do this. <laughs> like, I can't just bore of these tedious people, right? But yeah, he's a great guy. And, and, and Bobby, who used to be, I live in Yachtville, which is the, where the French Laundry is. I live about a 10 minute walk from the French Laundry, which is arguably probably the most famous restaurant in the United States. Yeah. And Bobby at one point was the sommelier at the French Laundry before he moved to Boulder and now he has a couple of restaurants in Denver, but anyway, fascinating guy. And he more or less single-handedly put Boulder on the restaurant map of the world. Absolutely. He did. So, anyway, thank you, Bobby. <laughs> uh, but so, you know, Bobby knows a lot about wine and, 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 and so, but I don't, I can't, I'm trying to think, and I don't think there's any place in Boulder that comes to mind and you may know differently that sells a lot of natural wine. Um, do you, do you know of any place? I, I don't, I don't think so. Nothing that comes to mind. Yeah. Because when I travel there, I always bring my own wine. Of course, uh, I drink my own, I drink my own wine everywhere, but. Is it, uh, is it a better rule at least to say that if you were out to dinner to have European wine than yes. American, yeah. like I mean, at least there's a rule of conventions. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And there's certain regions, particularly in France, where you're more likely to get better for you wine. Right. And then I also ask about alcohol levels for whatever reason, I don't, there's no real correlation around this, but lower alcohol wines tend to be more natural. They tend to be less manipulated. I'm not That's sure good. why, but 
even if you went in, now Bobby might be a little bit different because Bobby's super knowledgeable about his wine list and super knowledgeable about, but Bobby's a real kind of outlier, right? Because he's just that guy. Mm-hmm. But most Psalms would have no idea about the alcohol level in their wines. No idea, right? And it's the crapshoot if you go in the store, you can start turning the bottles red. Right. Right. But to, even at retail to find a 12 and a half percent wine, is very difficult. Even if you looked in a hundred bottles, you rarely find anything under 13. But typically low alcohol wines, for whatever reason, are less manipulated. And it probably has to do with the style of the wine grower maker. Like he likes, he or she likes a lighter, fresher wine and takes a lower approach to intervention with wine and gel, right? That's probably the correlation. So anyway, that's the difference between kind of commercial wine, which is everything that's not natural. It's also fair to note that less than one-tenth of 1% of the wines in the world are natural. It's a tiny, tiny, tiny marketplace. And the reason for that, the two reasons for that. Number one, you can't make wine in large volumes because native yeast won't allow it. And number two, even if you could, these brands are not well-known because they're small family farms. There's no money in making natural wine. Also, natural wines are not expensive, generally. There are some that are, but generally speaking, they're very approachable. As you know, we sell all of our wines for about $25 a bottle, which includes shipping. Right. That's important because shipping wine is super expensive because it's very heavy and it's perishable and it's packed in glass. Right. So it's a lot of problems with shipping wine. Not easy, especially in this environment. Right. So that's, you know, primarily that I know we're coming up on an hour and you have some specific questions, some of which we covered, some we didn't cover. Uh, yeah. The one, the one question I do have still is on the sulfites. Cause I know that's a big thing that at least people, you know, we talk about, oh, that people say, oh, I have get a headache because the sulfites, is that a real thing? And should we be looking it depends. Sulfites are naturally occurring in anything that's fermented and other foods as well. So very few people have an actual sulfite allergy. If they do, they know it. Yeah. Right. Sulfites are quite misleading in many ways. And sulfites get blamed for a lot they're probably not responsible for. And the reason for that is because in the 1960s, a teetotaling lawmaker in South Carolina who didn't drink forced the only disclosure other than alcohol, which is not even accurate, forced the only disclosure on the wine bottle that forced wine manufacturers and winemakers to put on every bottle contain sulfites. This gave sulfites added attention, yeah, unnecessarily kind of, but not kind of either. So let me get to that in a moment. But what makes most people in our view, there's not enough studies out there to substantiate any of this, right? Because it's never been widely studied. We do know that sulfur has been used to preserve wine since the Roman times. So for a couple of thousand years, sulfur has been used in winemaking. The question is, how it's used and how much. But let me get back to the, to what we believe probably causes most people to feel the worst. Yeah. Including spotchiness, tightness in the frontal lobe, uh, stuffiness is probably biogenetic amines. And the two worst offenders are tyramine and histamine. And so it's very common for people to have, it's much more common for people to have amine allergies are a reaction than it is to sulfites. But let's just say that you are sensitive to sulfites and some people are, although they might not be truly allergic, but they're sensitive to it. The question is how much sulfur is, how much sulfite is in the wine, which we lab test for that. Now we lab test for it because we're looking for added sulfur. Sulfur, when you add sulfur dioxide to wine, it does two things, depending upon how much you add. It is acts as a preservative against 
bacteria and oxidation. So it acts as a preservative. And if you add more of it, it actually adds as a sterilizer. It sterilizes the wine, killing everything in it that's alive. And the reason you sterilize the wine is that it gives it a very long shelf life because it kills absolutely any existing bacteria. See, in natural wines, they've not been sterilized. So they actually contain living bacteria, which is why they taste like they're alive. It's because they actually have living bacteria that Dr. David Perlmutter, two-time New York Times bestselling author on the gut microbiome, has published a number of times on the positive benefits for your gut microbiome of drinking natural wines because it contains gut-friendly bacteria that is still alive in the wine. Commercial wines do not because they've been sterilized. Now, how do we measure that? The U.S. legal limit is 350 parts per million of sulfur. Dry farm wine's average sulfur count is 39 parts per million. Wow. Pretty because delta. It's a, yeah, 10x delta nearly. And we place a limit on it. At 70 parts per million, because wines can have sulfites up to 70 parts that are naturally occurring, although it never happens. I mean, I ne I've never seen it. If you get anything upwards of 50, 60 parts, you, you, you have added sulfur, right? But we believe, uh, science tells us that it can be naturally occurring up to 70. So we will allow it, but if, I never see it. And as I said, the average is 39 parts in our wines. So we're testing for sulfur, we're testing for sugar, we're testing for alcohol, we're testing for any number of different variables in wine that affect not only its, its health value to us, but also its taste. Because they're off-putting, there are off-putting components to wine that can affect their taste. And we're super, super into taste. We love wine. And as I said, we only purchase 31% of the wines that we actually taste. So, and they all meet a bunch of criteria before you even taste them, right? They're always dry farm. They're always natural. You know, they're, of course, they're organic. They meet all of this criteria before we even taste them. And they have to be 12 and a half percent or below or we won't taste them, right? So in natural wine, lower alcohol, is common, but it's not exclusive. There are many natural wines at 15%. And they're perfectly fine wines. It's just more alcohol than I want to consume. Sure. So sulfites are really kind of an unknown, but I think they get a lot of blame for things that they don't really do. Uh, or maybe it's a way for people to identify because it's like the one thing that's on the labels. So the one thing is right. on the label, right? And and so, you know, I here's... I think it's fair to say, and I, I want to note that, you know, there's not, there's not a lot of studies, like just in nutrition in general, because you can't get really a lot of, you know, control group, right? You can't control what people eat, right? People can record in these nutritional studies, they tell you over a lifetime what they've done, like the, you know, farming, the Farmington Health mm -hmm you know, study that went on for 25 years and people represent, you know, kind of what they ate and their behavior over a 25 year period. I mean, it's, it's pretty nebulous, right? right. So I, you, you don't have a lot of particularly long-term control group, random control group studies where nutrition is concerned. You certainly don't have it where wine is concerned or even where alcohol is concerned. We do know that the excessive use of alcohol is dangerous. I think everybody can agree on that. And that seems to make a lot of sense, but in terms of, you know, what's in wine, what's out of wine, what's healthy for you, what makes you feel better, what's the long-term impact, we don't know. But here's what we do know for sure, and millions of people report this. When you drink natural wine, you feel better. And it tastes better. Right. And that's anecdotal, but it's just the way it is. And if you drink lower, lower alcohol wines, you feel better. <laughs> so that, you know, that's what we do know about. And... If you drink our wines for a couple of weeks and you go back and you try to drink traditional wine, you won't like it and you'll feel a difference. Yeah, absolutely. So that's, you know, so we don't, I don't have a lot of like magic studies to pull out. The study I had is a, uh, 
my partner, my two neighbors, and I drank six bottles of wine last <laughs> night. I got it. felt great this morning. That's all I can tell you. Right. Try it and figure it out and find out. Experiment for yourself. Yeah, yeah. So and 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 it tastes better. And so there's a bonus here. Not only is it better for you, but you feel better and it tastes so better. So win win. It is. All right. Well, we are going to wrap up with some quick rapid fires. The best advice you've gotten in the past six months. Um remain calm. Favorite words to live by. Remain calm. I feel happiest when? Um, probably when I'm drinking wine. A favorite book or podcast or mentor for growth? Um, real, real quickly, two favorite books. Um, the Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle and The Master Key System by um, Charles Hanel which was the master key system was written in 1912 and it was not a book, but it is, um, it was a correspondence course that has now been compiled into a book, but it was a correspondence course that you got for 24 weeks in the mail. Wow. Today it would be known as a funnel on the, on the internet, but it was a correspondence course that you got in the U S mail. Charles Hanel was the, was this 1912 instructive, instructive course, which has now been compiled into a very short book, was the precursor. It was the, it was the inspiration for Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich, which was written in the 1930s. And then it became the inspiration for a little bit crazy book known as The Secret yeah. by Rhonda, Rhonda's last name, an Australian which became a movie. Yeah. But anyway, those are, those are two of my, I could, I'm, I'm a prodigious read. I read a lot. So, um, I read oftentimes multiple books at the same time, kind of crazily. <laughs> and, uh, but so, so, but, but if I had to recommend one book, because, you know, meditation and the quietening of the mind and quieting the mind and understanding that the power of now I think does the best job of, of educating the reader about how the mind works. What he fails to do in that book is he doesn't give you the prescription for fixing it. The prescription is meditation, of course, but he talks briefly about it, but really the prescription is, is meditation, but under, understanding the how destructive the egoic mind is, which is why remaining calm under all circumstances is vital to the, to a successful life because life is not a straight line. It is up and down. It is painful quite often and unnecessarily, but how we respond to that negative stimuli determines the outcome of that circumstance and the outcome of our life and remaining calm at all times is the most effective means of responding to negative stimuli. Yeah, that's such a good, good lesson. Great book to pick up. And the last question, what is your number one non-negotiable to thrive on your wellness journey? Well, there are two, but I give you them in order fasting. Well, Actually, it's meditation and fasting because meditation is kind of the foundation of, I think, a healthy adult life because our mental wellness is probably the most challenging aspect of, of navigating a healthy, successful life. Our, our mental wellness is constantly under attack, particularly in the environment that we live in today. Yep. And there's so much anxiety and so many ways that these energy fields attempt to, to, um, destruct your mental wellness and people around you, the people we don't even know are constantly challenging your mental wellness. And so meditation is by far the most important practice I think an adult can have, but in terms of wellness, actual modalities for me is fascinating. Well. 
Todd, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. You were such a wealth of knowledge. Where can everybody find you, find Dry Farm? We are everywhere at Dry Farm Wines. DryFarmWines.com, Dry Farm Wines on all social media. And uh, we are on a crusade to help people live a, a happier, healthier life and to actually create beauty in the world. So that's kind of how we define our functions to create beauty in the world and help people live a healthier, happier life. Love it. Todd, thank you so much for your time today and we'll chat soon. Thanks. Appreciate you having me. Thanks so much for joining me on Live Purely with Elizabeth. I hope you feel inspired to thrive on your wellness journey. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review. You can follow us on Instagram at purely underscore Elizabeth to catch up on all the latest. See you next Wednesday on the podcast.